Return this morning to James chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Last week's text, James chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Next week's text, James chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. That's just another way of saying that we're taking the time to expand a little bit our introduction to our study in the book of James that we trust will prove profitable as we work through the little epistle. James 1, 1 to 3. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Father, again, we are thankful to have the occasion to focus our attention upon this written portion of thy word, We ask for thy blessed Spirit's help in teaching us today from it, especially as we consider something of the living testimony left to us in the Scripture from this individual named James. Thank you for each one that is here. We ask your blessing upon your people at study. And for that, we will praise you in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. There is, of course, a deep undercurrent of meaning in the way in which James identifies himself at the beginning of this epistle written to Jewish believers in Christ scattered by persecution and opposition. James calls himself a willing slave of God. James, a servant of God. The word servant is not the word that has to do with just stewardship or even an employment kind of a relationship, but rather is the word that deals specifically with slavery. And James views himself as a willing slave, otherwise known as a bond slave or bond servant of God. In that alone, there is significance of meaning as it relates to the humility of James and the reverence of James towards God. But the striking thing about the opening of James' epistle is the word and. And the associative phrase of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a flesh and blood half-brother to Jesus we might have expected James to identify himself as such 
as a device to underscore his own credibility. I'm not exactly sure why, but since Sherry and I have moved here to Elto, now been over a dozen years that we've been here, we get phone calls from time to time asking for one of our two sons. And when I answer the phone and they say, is Justin there? I always say, no, and never. <laughs> and they sometimes say to me, well, who are you? And I say, I'm the guy that knows. You would think that James might identify himself as Jesus is my brother. You would think that would enhance his writing. It would enhance his sermon. But, of course, James does not do that. And, in fact, he employs rather the official three-part identification of Jesus as both the imperial Lord and the Jewish Messiah. The preaching emphasis of the New Testament, a.k.a. as established when Peter stood on the day of Pentecost, was to present Jesus as both Lord and Christ. And that is the emphasis here. Jude, James' brother, wrote of himself as a slave of Jesus Christ in exactly the same manner as this. Although Jude also says, as we shall soon see, that James was his brother. This deliberately written deference to Jesus as Lord and Christ is profoundly meaningful because of the family story to tell. The family story to tell concerning our Lord's own earthly family as born of Mary. There is a family story to tell. And today, in the time allotted, I want to rehearse with you that story from the pages of God's written record. We are pursuing today, in essence, the biblical biography of the Lord's half-brother, James. And we begin in Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, particularly interested in verse 3, but I'd like to read verses 2 and 3 for the sake of context. Mark 6, 2 and 3. And when the Sabbath day was come, he, Jesus, began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things. And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is this not the carpenter's? I'm sorry, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joses and of Judah 
and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they, the hometown folk, were offended, scandalized at him. Now, you likely do not know what I surely didn't know until I studied it some years ago, that you and I hold to the Helvidian view. Did you know that? You and I hold to the Helvidian view of the family life of Jesus. You know that Romanism teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so, uh, Rome has found ways to explain away the obvious references here as viewed in Mark chapter 6. It became popular uh, under some uh, uh, of the teaching of Rome uh, to assert that James uh, was uh, the older brother of Jesus by a former marriage of Joseph before he took Mary to be his wife. The Helvidian view combated that notion and pushed for the straightforward idea that James and the other siblings younger than Jesus had been born by normal means after the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus, as Mary and Joseph acted as married couples do. Helvidian. Did you know that you were of the Helvidian order? I didn't know it until years ago, but I am. I certainly am. The point to be made for our purpose is that James grew up in the same godly home as did our Lord Jesus. Joseph, the actual father of James, is described as a just man in Scripture. And James was a chip off the old block. James was known as James the Just in honor of his earthly father, Joseph, and in honor of his older brother, the Son of God. Joseph and Mary led their home with a real sense of spiritual nurture and devotion to God. And James, the older half-brother of Jesus, modeled, as it were, uh, 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 before him, Uh, was uh, uh, that element of perfect obedience. Think of that. Big brother Jesus. (laughs) The perfect one. I mean, talk about never winning a brotherly fight. Because there was no fight. But nonetheless, that gives us insight, that gives us biblical insight into James the underaged. As an underaged baby, as an underaged toddler, as an underaged boy, James grew up in the godly home of Joseph and Mary. And the Lord Jesus was his big brother. How much of a gap 
was there between Jesus and James in age? I don't know. My best guess would be three years or less. But uh, they grew up in the same home. That was the experience. We get a biblical insight into the experience of, of Jesus' family life uh, as James is underaged. And if you're still in the text, you see the names of Jesus' other brothers. There's James. There's Joses. Don't know anything about him other than he's listed here. And of Judah. That, of course, is Jude of the biblical book, Jude, before the Revelation, and Simon. And not Simon Peter, but Simon who was half-brother to the Lord Jesus, blood brother, out of Mary, same mother. And furthermore, Jesus grew up not only with brothers, but sisters. Did you see that? And are not his sisters here with us? So apparently it's a good-sized family. And apparently the Lord Jesus grew up in a a rather normal, earthly family with brothers and sisters. That's quite a phenomenal thing to wrap your brain around when you're thinking about the uniqueness of the experience of the Lord Jesus, one, but two, the experience of James, who was the actual oldest son of Joseph and Mary. That brings us to James the unbeliever, John chapter 7 and verse 5. John chapter 7 and verse 5. I'll begin reading again at 2, and I'll read through 6, but I'm interested in verse 5. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, his brethren, his brothers, just saw their names back in Mark 6. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart thence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is already or always ready. Uh, That is a powerful insight to adult Jesus, and to those adult sons of Joseph and Mary, who the scripture says did not at that point in time believe in Jesus as the Christ. In spite of the privilege of being raised in a home that uh, included the God-born, incarnate Son of God, James did not believe as a young adult that his older brother, Jesus, was the Messiah. That's what the scripture tells us here. And in fact, the brothers in this text of John 7 are actually sarcastically saying to Jesus, listen, 
If you really are who some people think you are, you ought to show forth. You ought to demonstrate it. You ought not keep it a secret if, in fact, you are the Messiah. And it is in that context that the Holy Spirit makes sure that you and I hear that James and, uh, and Joses and Judah and Simon did not believe in him. James, along with his other siblings, believed that Jesus was, at best, misguided and possibly off his rocker during the three years of the Lord's public ministry. I can imagine that when Jesus shook his apron in the wood shop and the stone cutting shop uh, to head out in public ministry, that James might as well or may have well had the thought, so you're leaving and the whole family business is on my shoulders. We have people that know what it is to be in family business, and nobody in that family wants the whole business to be on their shoulders. <laughs> and I'm sure that James had a little attitude when the Lord Jesus shook his apron and said, I'm leaving now. Quite a moment. Quite a story you tell. James likely assumed the role of authority in the family after Joseph died and Jesus left for public ministry. James became the executor of his father's will because Jesus was the executor of his father's will. Once again, James was the executor of his father's will, Joseph, because Jesus was the executor of his father's will, God Almighty. Next stop, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm interested in verse 7. I'll begin reading verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present hour, but some are fallen asleep, or of course, we could say it, some of those have, have died now at the point in time which Paul wrote. Verse 7, after that, he, Jesus, resurrected Christ, was seen of James, than all of the apostles. Not until the resurrected Lord himself sought out James 
did he realize how very mistaken he had been about Jesus. There is a moment right there that we would all like to see. James went from Jesus to Lord Jesus in a relative flash of person-to-person gracious confrontation. I won't have you turn to the text for the sake of time, but Dr. Luke listed the people gathered in the upper room after the ascension, awaiting the promise of the Holy Spirit, uh, that uh, among those uh, continuing with one a prayer, with Mary, with Mary the mother of Jesus, and you have this glorious little phrase in Acts 114, and Mary, and Mary, and his brethren. James, Jude, Simon, and Josie's, they're in. It's amazing what resurrection will do <laughs> to your opinion concerning Big Brother when once you've seen him for yourself with your own eyes. I envisioned again in that element of sanctified imagination of mine, I envisioned James coming into the house saying, Ma, he is the Lord. And she says, I know, son. I know, son. And then she backtracked and started to tell the rest of the family story to tell, to fill in some of the gaps that happened over generations of time in every family. He is the Lord. James had a moment with Jesus, resurrected Jesus, after crucifixion, after burial. I can envision that in the three days that Jesus was in the grave, that if Josie's or Simon would have said to James, what are you thinking? James would have probably said something like, well, I kind of miss him, but I'm frankly glad he's dead because (laughs) I'll tell you, that's one hard guy to deal with. And if he's out of the picture, well then, I think our lives will be smoother and easier and we'll just be able to get on with it. See it work on Monday. Okay. That's the way it is in family business. And James was in charge. But then, on the weekend, Jesus shows up. That'll change your family business. Brings us to number four. James the Undertaker. Galatians is the next little stop. We so rarely do this kind of thing that some of you think we never do this kind of thing because all I do is get stuck in a passage and just stay there and stay there and stay there. But sometimes you have to inform the words of your little text with uh, the plain insights from the Word of God. Galatians chapter 1, verse 19 gives us insight to James the Undertaker. Paul's giving his testimony. He says, verse 17, Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, 
and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none save or except James, the Lord's brother. I use the word undertaker, and I don't mean funeral director. I mean that James undertook great responsibility in the early church as evident by the fact that he was one of Paul's early contacts within the Jerusalem church that freed the Apostle Paul to pursue the ministry to which God had called him. Paul relates to us that he saw Peter and this James while in Jerusalem. Furthermore, Peter, John, and James authorize Paul and Barnabas for the continuation of missionary work as recognized leaders in the Jerusalem church. Peter, John, and this James extend the right hand of fellowship to Paul, and you can read a little of that in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9. And when James... Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me. They gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Or they freed Paul to go, as it were, uh, in ministry to the Gentiles, affirming to Paul that the apostles, Peter, and the apostles, along with James, the Lord's half-brother, they would remain in Jerusalem and minister to the Jewish saints there in the world's first church. We won't turn for the sake of time, but Acts 12 records that Peter, having just been released from prison, tells the believers to go and tell James and the brethren of his miraculous release. This gives us further indication that James undertook, that James received a, a tremendous sense of pastoral responsibility and leadership in the Jerusalem church. Again, we're, we're quickly reviewing the family history to tell concerning the writer of the book of James. And we say that he was an undertaker, a steward of great responsibility. Well, uh, back to the book of James for just a, a quick moment. Uh, and uh, note again that which we've already noted. It'll go quick, but again... James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, the unpretentious. Uh, we come back now to where we started. Uh, James was unpretentious. He didn't flaunt the fact that he was the Lord's half-brother. Didn't even mention it. Uh, the letter uh, written after the stoning of Stephen, as recorded in Acts 7 and before the church council, in Acts chapter 15, James writes to Jewish Christians scattered by serious persecution 
identify himself as God's slave and the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that none of us in that fail to see his humility and his lacking sense of pretension as it relates to uh, his obvious relationship with the Lord. But just for a little bit further breakdown of the names there or the, the official title there, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was James Lord. And while the New Testament word was used popularistically in that day of culture, uh, uh, like we would use the word sir or mister or missus, uh, uh, here it's reference to imperial Lord. As the Romans used the title, Caesar is Lord. And here James says, my Lord, my imperial Lord. And of course, Lord Jesus, James would know, especially by this point in time, the full story. His mother would have fully informed him about her pregnancy, first pregnancy, about the birth of the Lord Jesus. And James would have been included as to the fact that even the name Jesus was not something that Mary and Joseph came up with, but was something that God himself through the angel had told Mary and Joseph separately that he should be named Jesus because of his earthly mission. For he, said the angel, shall save his people from their sins. James would have known that Joseph and Mary named him, named Joseph, named Judah, uh, named Simon, named the girls. We don't know. But it was the Lord in heaven that named Jesus. And then, of course, Christ, Messiah, the fulfillment of all Old Testament promise, and prophecy. Talk about coming to a moment in time. Here it is, James chapter 1 and verse 1. Not quite done, though. I do want to say about something about James the unifier. And uh, if you go with me quickly to Acts 15, the book of James written would have preceded the record of history in James chapter 15. That's why we placed it after the reference in James 1.1. But in the history book of the New Testament, chapter 15, we read verse 1, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. That sets up the world's first church council held in the Jerusalem church and uh, important in the development of the missionary enterprises among the Gentiles, here in Acts chapter 15. 
If you look, please, at uh, verse 7, we read, And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up in that council meeting and said to them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. So in that council meeting, Peter speaks up to establish what was happening out of heaven concerning the confirmation of the gospel being preached and received among Gentiles. And then in the midst of that council meeting, we find at verse 12, then, all the multitude kept silent and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul, who were declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, or after the two missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, had finished giving their missionary report, James, the pastoral elder and leader of the Jerusalem church, answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. What did James the pastor do? He said, open your Bibles and let me show you in the word of God how this thing works. Isn't that a wonderful example of pastoral ministry? And that's exactly what James did. He was a pastoral unifier in a divided church. He was a pastoral unifier in a divided church. James' words, based upon the word of God, won the day and unified the church. The decision of that council was published, and the missionaries were free to preach Christ without restraint of circumcision among the Gentiles. James the just led the way for that. Paul wrote that the Gentiles who once were afar off had been brought near or nigh by the blood of Christ. Our Lord had broken down the middle wall of partition that existed between believing Jews and Gentiles, making them one in Christ. James played a significant role in this understanding and in support to the Apostle Paul who led the way concerning that truth as the God-ordained apostle to the Gentiles. And that brings me then to the last reference in the story to tell 
concerning James, the oldest son of Joseph and Mary. James the upstaged. Please go to Jude, the book just before the Revelation, chapter 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. Same word, slave. Jude just gets right after it. Jude, the slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Pretty clear. To them that are sanctified by God, sanctified by God the Father, and watch, and preserved, kept, sustained in Jesus Christ and called. We are saying only for the sake of our you letter outline that James was upstaged by Jude in that James did say he too was a slave of Jesus Christ and he did say that he was the brother of James but then Jude makes particular emphasis in his little biblical postcard the book of Jude that Jesus Christ is the one of our sustenance. That Jesus Christ is the one of our perseverance. That Jesus Christ is the one of our preservation. That everything about saved and kept comes right back down to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'll tell you, I have to believe that our Lord is very, very pleased with the communication of his two brothers. James the upstaged. (laughs) Both brothers related to Jesus with the greatest sense of awe and humility. We know That familiarity can breed contempt. But in the case of James and Jude, there was nothing but honor and glory for the one they knew so well, and yet for so long knew not at all. Of the things I've read concerning introduction to James, this is one of the best. James' church lived in the midst of a collapsing world. Although the church as a whole was growing and spreading across the world, believers were oppressed in their suffering. Their tendency was to imitate the world and to try to gain power within the church. There was also a weariness about the church and an impatience with waiting for Christ's return. 
The struggle for power, combined with this weariness, produced internal factions, gossip, and complaints. Since the church was economically insecure, church members tended to curry favor with the few wealthy members to hold back on charitable giving and generally to look out for number one. James senses a general worldliness despite good attendance numbers at services around the world. This is the situation James addresses with a stinging letter designed to shake them out of their lethargy and point them back to their Lord. I would simply say to you at the end of this hour that you and I live in a culture just like that. We too are inclined to imitate the world. We too are inclined to curry favor or to gain power within the local church by human means. That struggle is real. We find ourselves right now with things not being too bad, but neither very good. We need to hear James to shake off our own lethargy that we might once again serve the Lord with the gladness that he deserves. Oh God, help us and prepare our hearts for James as we continue to study it together. And for this morning, now noon, help us to package our thinking in such a way so as to demonstrate in song something of that humility, something of that awe, something of that reverence for Jesus Christ that we have seen in the two brothers, James and Jude. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.